That's a real problem. Another saying we have uh, within the world of, of vaccines and public health is that vaccines have really become a victim of their own success. They work so well that they've eliminated these diseases so that a lot of parents today, most parents today, um, have never seen a lot of the diseases that we vaccinate our children for, much, and, and uh, many of them have not even heard of them. Dr. O'Leary is a pediatric infectious disease specialist and professor of pediatrics at the University of Colorado. As director of the Colorado Children's Outcomes Network, a practice-based research consortium, he and his colleagues focus on identifying barriers to vaccination. Dr. O'Leary is with us today to talk about developing and testing interventions to address barriers to vaccinations. Hello, Dr. O'Leary, and welcome to On Medical Grounds. Happy to be here. As you know, August is National Immunization Awareness Month. Can you tell us why the CDC picked August to promote vaccinations? You know, I'm not entirely sure of the history, but my best guess would be that it's because August is, is a big back-to-school time for most kids in the U.S., and uh, so a lot of uh, visits, well-child visits, etc., cetera, um, happen in July and August, and it's a great time to get caught up on vaccines. So that would be my best guess for why CDC chose, chose August as uh, the, its immunization month. The CDC has reported a 14% drop in vaccine orders from 2021 compared to 2019, and measles vaccine is down by more than 20%. Why the reduction? Yeah, it's a big problem. I, I think a lot of it, uh, well, I, first I'll say it's, it's multifactorial, uh, but it is, it is all directly as a result of the pandemic. Um, people going into the, the doctor less, um, doctor's offices having fewer appointments available because of staffing shortages, public health departments uh, that normally would be giving vaccines, um, routine vaccines to children stretched really thin because of the pandemic and, and um, suspending vaccination services. So there are a lot of different reasons that uh, we've, we've seen this big drop in vaccination coverage. Many children miss their regular wellness checkup and recommended childhood vaccinations during the past two years. How do we catch up following these disruptions from the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So um, schools, the, the way we have, one of the ways we've maintained such high vaccination coverage uh, in the U.S. over the, over the uh, decades are uh, school and childcare requirements. And so there are certain vaccines that are required to enter school because we, we of course, want to keep our children safe at school and keep uh, vaccine-preventable diseases from spreading at school. And so the way that works is that when, when kids enroll in school at the beginning of the school year, uh, a, someone at the school is supposed to check, their, uh, check to see that they're up to date on their vaccines. And if they're not up to date, then they can be, it depends on the, on the uh, individual state in terms of how the laws work exactly. But uh, in general, what happens is if they're not up to date on their vaccines, they are told you have a week or two weeks to go get your child caught up on vaccines. We need to see that record. And then if they're not caught up, they're actually excluded from school. Um, and so there's a real incentive, of course, to get the kids caught up on their vaccines in that setting. I read an interesting quote in MedPage today. This is from William Schaffner. He's an MD at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. He said, it's the reverse of the old saying, it's gone, but not forgotten. Polio is forgotten, but it's not gone. Have we forgotten the past and the serious consequences of certain diseases? 
what are some of the long-term effects of the preventable diseases like, like polio and, and mumps, diphtheria, and smallpox? So, um, for example, polio is, is a great example that, uh, you know, we haven't had any wild-type polio in the U.S. since, gosh, many decades. Uh, and since we've been using the inactivated polio virus, no, no, really no polio at all, uh, or sorry, inactivated polio vaccine, no polio at all in the U.S. for decades. So um, now we have a case in New York State, uh, and it looks like uh, the virus may be circulating there as well at this point. So, yeah, we, we have these diseases that parents have never seen that, that we risk having a resurgence. What are some of the long-term effects of polio? Well, polio um, what is, is an interesting virus. For many people, it is simply... Uh, mild infection where they don't really feel like they're very sick. Um, but about one out of every 200 cases uh, develops what's called paralytic polio. It's a very contagious virus, and so it can spread uh, within communities. And uh, many people may not know they have it, but they're spreading it. And then uh, certain individuals, unfortunately, will develop uh, this paralysis, and, and that can look like a number of different things. But basically, they can use lose the... Uh, uh, use of their limbs. Uh, in some cases, they can become completely paralyzed. Uh, and you, you may have, have seen pictures or heard of iron lungs. Th those came out of polio uh, because pe uh, children lost the ability, children who got infected with poliovirus and then developed paralytic polio lost the ability to breathe on their own. And so they were put into iron lungs. How about smallpox? Well, smallpox, uh, we did successfully eradicate smallpox in the 1970s. The, the last human case was, in the, it was, I believe, in 1978, thanks to uh, a lot of effort and a, and a very uh, big global push on a vaccination campaign. Um, and so there really is, there, there's no circulating smallpox. Uh, there is the concern that it could be used as a bioweapon. So we maintain um, smallpox vaccine uh, um stockpiles uh, here in the U.S. Uh, on the off chance that there is a, uh, that it is used as a bioweapon. Um, but what we're seeing now, of course, is, is monkeypox. And monkeypox is somewhat related to smallpox. It's in the same family of viruses uh, and uh, can look similar, although it, it is not as severe as smallpox, fortunately. Prior to the pandemic, were we seeing a downward trend in childhood vaccinations? So uh, prior to the pandemic, actually, we were seeing vaccination coverage steadily go up. Um, I, I think we, people hear a lot about vaccine hesitancy and vaccine refusal, but the fact is that the vast majority of parents uh, in the U.S. vaccinate their children. Um, we have uh, rates north of 90 percent for, for most of the childhood vaccines, and we had seen those, uh, the, the percentages actually going up uh, in, the, in the years leading up to the pandemic. And then, of course, we've seen this precipitous drop since the pandemic started. Let's talk about vaccination misinformation. Have the Internet and social media been the major drivers? Just to be clear on the, on the difference, misinformation is just information that's incorrect, that is spread unknowingly by people who think it's correct information. Disinformation is when people purposely spread misinformation. Now... There are lots of ways that that can spread. It can spread in, you know, of course, individual conversations. Um, it can spread in the lay media. But, of course, the, the big 
what we've seen over the last couple of decades is just an explosion of misinformation and disinformation spreading on social media. And so, yes, the, the, the Internet is, has been a major driver of a lot of the misinformation and disinformation that's been spreading uh, over the last uh, couple of decades. As a nationwide trend, are there children who receive their early shots but now aren't getting their boosters? Well, so yeah, just so just to just so your listeners are clear, um, there are kind of three periods we think of with childhood vaccination. There's there's kind of the infant or childhood series, which is between birth and about 18 months or so, and then there is the what we call the kindergarten shots, where children are due at four to six years, and then there there's a series of adolescent vaccines as well. And so we have seen a drop off in some of those booster shots as a result of the pandemic. But uh, I have not actually seen data suggesting that we have a big uptick, for example, in children who um, got all of their infant vaccines and now are, the parents are refusing their boosters. Certainly that happens, um, but I'm, I'm not aware of data suggesting that that's happening any more now than it was in the past. Tell me about the Colorado Children's Outcomes Network. Yeah, so the, the type of research I do could be generally classified into what's called health services research or outcomes research. And uh, so the Colorado Children's Outcomes Network is a large network of pediatric primary care practices who have agreed to participate in, in research studies. And these are not the generally the, the, what, the typical sort of clinical trials for medications or vaccines or things like that. Um, though, and those certainly still happen and, and, and do happen sometimes in our, in our network. But the type of research we do is really more about research that's relevant to the primary care provider on a day-to-day -day basis. And so a lot of the, the work that we do has to do with vaccines and vaccinations. So we uh, work with our clinicians. We work with parents in the practices uh, in, in all of these pediatric practices across Colorado to understand, you know, what are they, what are the, what, from the provider's perspective, what are they seeing in terms of barriers to vaccination from the parent, same thing from the parent's perspective. And then we work with the practices to develop interventions that uh, hold promise for increasing vaccination uptake. Um, and that's one example of some of the research that we do. So what are the major barriers that you're seeing in 2022? Well, you know, a lot of the barriers that, that we saw as a result of the pandemic, of course, have to do with logistics, getting people into the clinic. Um, a lot of clinics are short-staffed right now. So they, for example, it, it's, it's one evidence-based strategy to increase vaccination coverage is to have nurse-only appointments or to have extended hours where parents can just drop in and get a vaccine. Most of the clinics that I work with at this point, and I think this is true in a lot of the country, uh, they don't have the staff right now to be able to to handle those types of things. So th this, these sort of extra times where they would be giving vaccinations, uh, they're not able to do that. So that that's certainly a barrier. Um, you know, other barriers, of course, um, you know, vaccine hesitancy and refusal. Um, we still see a lot of the same things we saw in 2022 that we've seen um, prior to the pandemic. Some parents have concerns about the safety of vaccines. Some parents, uh, you know, as we as we discussed, visibility of a lot of these diseases has has really gone away because of the vaccine, how, how effective the vaccines are. And so a lot of parents don't feel like the vaccines are necessary. A lot of those things are still true. 
Now, of course, there there is some concern that uh, some of the uh, political rhetoric that we've seen around COVID-19 vaccines, uh, how we, we've seen somewhat of a partisan divide, unfortunately, with the COVID-19 pandemic, that some of that may spill over into childhood vaccines. I, I've heard some stories about about parents who who that, to whom that's happened. Um, but on the other hand, I've also heard stories on the other other side of that coin, parents who stories from pediatricians, for example, of parents who prior to the pandemic completely refused all vaccines now are coming in and saying, you know what, I want to get my kids caught up on their vaccines. We really need these. You mentioned interventions. How do you measure their effectiveness? Yeah, that's a great question. So we typically when we do a study, we have um, what are called the primary outcomes. And in most cases with, with vaccination studies, what we're looking at is, is actual vaccination coverage. And so most of the time what we'll do is that we, we do a lot of what are called cluster randomized trials, where we will recruit a bunch of practices to participate in intervention. Let's say we have, we recruit 24 practices uh, and there are different ways of randomizing, but, but sort of the classic way would be to say, half of these, let's say 12 of them, will get an intervention and the other half will get, uh, will just continue with usual care. And that intervention may be a communication training program. It may be a reminder program for families, something like that. And then what we'll do is um, measure the vaccination coverage of the children within those practices at baseline prior to when the intervention happens. And then we will implement the intervention over a period of time, usually one to three years, something like that. And then we will remeasure the vaccination coverage at the end of the study and, uh, and then compare between the two practices to see, did the, was, did the intervention show effectiveness? Now, the, I meant those are the primary outcomes. We also measure things, uh, a lot of what we might call secondary outcomes, where we are looking at, you know, how did the parents perceive the intervention? Was it acceptable to them? Was it, was it simple to, inter to do the intervention within the clinic? Did it require a lot of extra time on the part of the providers? All of those things are really important when we start to think about if we do demonstrate effectiveness in one of these clinical trials, how do we disseminate that to a broader population? So there are a lot of things that we need to understand about the intervention when we do these trials. Is cost an issue for some parents? Cost can, of course, be an issue with just about anything you're talking about with healthcare. Uh, the good news is with vaccines is that uh, in the early 90s, the Vaccines for Children program was created. And so the vaccine for children's, Vaccines for Children program covers vaccines for any child who is on Medicaid, any child who is uninsured, and any child who is uh, Alaska, uh, Alaska Native or American Indian. And so all of those are provided free of charge to the parents at no cost. Now, um, the, one, of the, one of the issues there, of course, is in, in some geographic locations within the U.S., it may require a lot of travel for a family to get to a place where they can receive a vaccine. So there are those types of barriers that aren't directly related necessarily to the cost of the vaccine, but can be, you know, quote unquote, costly for the family to be able to, to do that. How can healthcare providers receive better access to these interventions? There was a study done uh, quite a few years ago that looked at um, when, you, when an intervention is proven effective in medicine, how long does it take to get that intervention into general use? 
And what that study showed was that it took about 17 years for uh, an intervention that was shown to be evidence-based to get into routine use and practice. And, you know, one of the goals of the research, the type of research that I do is to really collapse that uh, so that it gets down to, you know, essentially zero. We find an effective intervention and we roll it out to the general population. And so there are a lot of ways that that can happen. Uh, one, of course, is, is staying up to date on the existing literature. That can, be, that can be difficult for a busy provider. So, you know, things that we do to try and disseminate our, our interventions are uh, a lot of times through professional societies, for example, through the American Academy of Pediatrics. Uh, we will um, host town halls. We will um, send messages by email, put messages, for example, in AAP news that, that a lot of the providers read. So we, we do our best to get those interventions uh, rolled out as, as best we can. Also, of course, um, giving a lot of education at different uh, um, academic meetings, those kinds of things to help to help get those get the word out on, on effective interventions. Um, but it, it is it, I don't want to make this sound easy. It, it is a real challenge. Um, but uh, th there are lots of ways that, that we that we try to get these these effective interventions disseminated. Where can we find more information on the Colorado Children's Outcomes Network? So if you were just to Google, for example, CocoNet, C-O-C-O-N-E-T, uh, you could find more information about it. Um, but uh, and then also just you can find some of the, the research we've done as well. Um, but using, you know, for, for providers who are fami familiar with searching the medical literature, a lot of our work is on PubMed. So does CocoNet have an intervention which handles healthcare professionals who are opposed to vaccines or who are vaccine hesitant? Well, so that's a that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> um, you know, fortunately, the vast majority of um, clinicians are, you know, understand the science and recognize the importance of vaccines and that the benefits far outweigh the risks. It does become a real problem when you do have someone like a healthcare professional who is in a trusted, you know, is, is in a trusted role, really, um, you know, parents and, and patients really trust uh, doctors and nurses above just about anybody else in society. So when we have one of these sort of fringe or rogue healthcare professionals who's, uh, uh, you know, promoting misinformation, that's a real problem. And so there, there are, you know, you, <laughs> there are different ways. It, it really depends on the situation and how you do that. Uh, there, there's, but I, I would say there's not actually there haven't been studies on this, fortunately, because there, these providers are generally few and far between when you're talking about, you know, for example, primary care physicians. The vast majority of primary care physicians uh, stock and recommend vaccines according to the CDC and AAP recommended schedules. What were you hoping that I would ask you today? We haven't talked about COVID. I don't know if you want to go there. Go ahead. You know, what we saw with the COVID-19 vaccines in terms of getting them developed uh, in, in such a short period of time was nothing short of miraculous and, and really has, has saved millions of lives around the world. What we saw with the rollout here in the U.S. is uh, fortunately the people that were at the highest risk got vaccinated in very high numbers. So our, our uptake in adults 65 and over is very, very high, well north of 90% for these vaccines. So again, saving hundreds of thousands of lives in the U.S. alone. 
As we go down in age group, though, the, uptakes, uh, the uptake has, it has not been quite as robust. It's still quite high for 12 plus, but we're seeing um, less, sorry, I, I'll, uh, let me silence that. Um, what we're seeing in the younger ages under 12 is not as high of an uptake. So roughly 40% of kids five to 11 have been vaccinated with at least one dose. And the under five uptake, uptake as, as we're doing this recording, the vaccine has been, been approved at that age group um, for uh, a few months now, and we're seeing pretty slow uptake there. Number of factors involved in terms of, you know, some of it related to access issues, but a lot of it is that, that a lot of folks have moved on from the pandemic at this point and don't view it as a threat anymore. And they also don't view it as a threat for their children. The problem though is, is for someone who's, who's completely unvaccinated, COVID-19 is still a threat. Um, we know that, that getting uh, um, infected with COVID and surviving does provide some protection, but that protection wanes. And we know that vaccination on top of that does provide more protection. The fact is that in children under age five, COVID-19 in the last year is actually the number four cause of death. And so when you see, when you look at the other, you know, say top 10 causes of death, it's things like motor vehicle accidents and drownings and childhood cancers. And if we had a simple, safe intervention that could prevent any one of those, right, we would jump at it. But, but unfortunately, we, so fortunately, we do have that with COVID-19 in, in the vaccine, but a lot of parents aren't getting it right now. So I think that's something that, that really parent, a lot of parents should reconsider and, and check with their pediatrician and, or family doctor and, and, and get in to go ahead and get that vaccine. Dr. O'Leary, we appreciate your work with interventions and your goal to shout it from the rooftops <laughs> that parents need to get their children vaccinated. Thank you so much for taking time from your busy schedule to talk with me. My pleasure. And thank you for listening to the On Medical Grounds podcast. We know your time is valuable. The resources that were referred to in this podcast can be found at onmedicalgrounds.com. Be sure to click the subscribe button to be alerted when we post new content. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and review it and share it with your friends and colleagues. This podcast is protected by copyright and may be freely used without modification for educational purposes. To find more information or to inquire about commercial use, please visit our website on medicalgrounds.com.